Hello and welcome back to another episode of Planning Ahead, the podcast series brought to you by Warwick Plan. I'm lucky enough to today be joined by Carol Mehigan from Reed Smith. As well as her work there, she's also a youth mentor working in local schools, as well as a mental health advocate and speaker. I first had the pleasure of meeting Carol back at our plan conference in May, where she was part of our panel discussion on intersectionality. And I'm delighted to have her back to talk a little more about that, as well as the importance of intersectional thinking when it comes to allyship. So, Carol, thank you for joining us. Um, I thought firstly, I'd just ask for your opinions on intersectionality and kind of how you interpret it and why it's important to you. Of course. Uh, well, first of all, Zach, thank you very much for um, inviting me to be a guest on your podcast. Um, I feel truly honoured to be um, having this conversation with you. Um, so to your question, for me, I interpret, interpret intersectionality as being one word, really, togetherness. Um, it's recognising that different identities do not always work independently. Um, so, like, for example, if I was describing myself um, in a crowd, if I said to you, you know, I'm a woman, well, sorry, if somebody pointed out to you that woman over there, if there are plenty of women over there in the corner that she's, they're talking about, you probably wouldn't be able to know who they're talking about. But if they said that black woman over there, that would probably give you a better indication. So I feel that identities don't, you know, work really independently. Um, they probably work a lot better um, together but they also, um, it gives more of a, a show of identities and how they work on many different levels and showing the unique experiences and the opposites and barriers for everyone. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, and how do you feel that your personal experience and your childhood and, and where you are now has kind of shaped that perspective and shaped that view? Yes, yeah, so I think um, as a black woman who was brought up on a council estate from a single parent family household um, and low income background. I think it's kind of shaped me in the fact that I think society expected someone from my background to not thrive, but just survive. So like many others who probably came from similar, similar backgrounds, you know, I, I think society was expecting me to end up being, you know, a single mother with numerous children from different fathers um, and, and on benefits, but obviously, you know, I sort of broke the mould. Yeah, um, and in terms of sort of intersectional discrimination, which is something which is um, very prominent at the moment, I mean, some of the statistics around LGBTQ plus students, I mean, uh, Latinx and um, Native American LGBTQ plus students have a significantly higher prevalence of um, self-harm and suicide attempts in America. And black LGBTQ um, plus hate crimes uh, rose by over 25% in the last five years. Um, so what do you think the importance, this is something that relates to your work, um, is the importance of educating people and educating and allowing them to understand the importance of, you know, intersectionality and embracing that intersectionality? Yeah, so I think the importance of education, um, especially around uh, current generations and children is really, really important. You know, children learn a lot of lessons from adults and they're like sponges. You know, you, you teach them things, they soak it up and they, that's what they sort of learn and carry on learning as they get older. And I think if we can teach them in the right way, how to not be 
discriminant against other people, how to embrace differences in other people. It can make them not only a more rounded person as they grow up to be an adult, but also they become less consciously or unconsciously biased because they understand that everyone's different and everyone sort of that diff brings the difference something to the table um, and to embrace that and, and not to kind of be ignorant of the fact that we we all are people but we all have differences yeah so on, on the other side of the spectrum how would you say that your work in mentorship and helping those who are perhaps the victims of such you know that kind of discrimination and you know almost just kind of that that casual bias that society has um against people from any minority how, how would you say that mentorship and that guidance that you and others bring is important to helping people overcome stuff like that so yeah it's a really interesting question because it's it's something that i've understood more and more as i've been working on student programs um, and having volunteers take part in those programs with kind of panel discussions or networking sessions and what I've learned from children when I've you know, been speaking to them is that a lot of the messages they're getting are still not the correct messages. And that's not because the teachers or their parents or guardians or whoever is giving them um, misinformation. It's mainly because those adults probably don't know the correct information, especially when it comes to working in a business environment, for example, where differences are embraced, where differences do make it better for the workforce. You know, our clients are expecting to be able to see people like them when you know they're put in front of their lawyers um, or if you're looking to sort of get, go for some business with a firm. Um, so I think that um, because young people are still being given misinformation um, and I said like I said not because it's um, it's been done on purpose I think coming into our environment and meeting different people from all different walks of life all different backgrounds can start teaching them to kind of um, not just stop the unconscious biasness, but the conscious biasness that they have when they come in to, you know, an environment like ours. And I can give you an example. So um, this is pre-COVID uh, when we were doing lots of in-person um, events. I had some students come in from um, a school based in Hackney, um, mainly predominantly black uh, male students, which was unusual because um, we, we mainly get a, a more of a mixture. Um, but I just remember during the lunch time, one of the students, one of the black male students, um, said to me, so miss, are you posh? And I was quite taken aback by that, because I was like, why would you think I'm posh? But that's because I know the background I come from. And obviously he was just looking at this um, black woman standing in front of him who spoke well, who dressed well, who was working in a corporate environment, had a really good job. So he'd already made a conscious biasness about who I was without actually asking uh, any questions, except for that question that he kind of randomly asked me at lunchtime. So I sort of said to him, can you hold on to that question and we'll come back to it when we start the sessions again? And I think he looked at me thinking, oh, she's, she's not going to answer the question because she doesn't want me to know. And I made him repeat it and he was a little bit shy the second time round, but he did. And then I basically gave them, gave them a very brief synopsis of my background. And you could see visibly the change in the attitudes of all the students, but also that particular student had asked the question. He's kind of, he's, you know, he, you could see in his eyes that all of a sudden, you know, what he'd thought or who he thought I was, was completely the opposite. 
And he actually said to me afterwards, Miss, thanks so much for telling us about your background. That's really been inspiring. It's really been interesting. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's made a difference. Just that, you know, slight bit of story that I've told them about my background has made a difference. But it's also broken down that biasness that they thought of because when they walked in to the, the building, they met me, they made their mind up of who I was and, and what the building had for, you know, who, who were people working in the building as well. Mm. Yeah, it, no, it, it's really, really interesting to, to see that direct impact of what, you know, a role model can can have on, on young people. And is that something that you had yourself when you were younger? Or if not, how did you kind of overcome that sort of lack of not being able to kind of see yourself um, in, you know, another person's shoes? So for me, role models, no, I didn't have any role models. Um, I was kind of inspired by someone who will never know they inspired me because it was on a, a, a film uh, on the television, um, black and white TV back in those days. And it was um, way back in the early 70s. And I just remember, you know, for me, I really enjoyed learning. Um, unfortunately, I, 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 I experienced a lot of bullying during my primary school stage. Um, and because of that, I got very immersed into reading books, which helped to kind of take me away from what was going on from a day-to-day -day basis. And so that learning continued as I went through my education. Not to say that I was the brightest bulb in the pack, but I did try my best. And I made sure that I did get a good education because I knew that I, where I wanted to go, I knew what career mode I was aiming for but I didn't have anyone to follow in the footsteps of. And I didn't even really know where I was going to start. It was all a very big learning curve. And I just had to talk to different people. I had to be quite brave and talk to people and ask them questions. So when I went to college, for example, to do my business studies and secretarial studies, because I wanted to be a secretary uh, as my first chosen career, um, you know, it was, it was a case of asking questions of those people who were around me who may know the answers, you know, and going for my first job interview, you know, I was even more nervous when I walked in and saw you know five other candidates none of them looked like me they were all older than me they all looked like they came from much better backgrounds than me um some of them when I overheard them talking about they traveled they'd had different languages and there was me sitting there uh, this young 17 year old black girl who had just finished college hadn't even got my results yet and I was up against you know five young white girls who were in their 20s with much better backgrounds than myself. Um, so for a very long time, even as I got into the legal sector when I was about 20, there was no real, no one really who looked like me. Um, and so it was one of those things, it was either keep going or go and find an industry that did look like me, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to go into hospitality or into nursing professional or anything like that, where there was more people from my background in those sort of areas I wanted to go into the business world so I just um, like I said kept asking questions kept opening doors for myself um, and yes I probably was the, the poster girl each time I went to a new law firm but eventually as time went on and I started to see more diversity within the legal industry um, it started getting better and for me it just it made a whole lot of sense of why I'd stayed in it and it was good to see that change. Hmm. So for other people that perhaps you know now still feel the same way that you did in terms of struggling to see people that 
you know, they see themselves in? What would you say, um, you know, to encourage them, to motivate them that, you know, they should persevere and should stick with what it is that they want to achieve? So I, I always say, and this is one of my little mottos, I always say, don't let your background define who you are. You are the, you are the controller of your own destiny. And I think if you want to pursue something, then you should not think about not doing it and not let anyone else stop you from doing that. You know, we all have an opportunity to make something of our lives. Um, and I think if that's what you want to do, then you, you should definitely go ahead. It may be a struggle. Yes, you may be the first, but someone has to be the first. It doesn't mean that you'll be the only one. You know, you may be the first person, but you never know who's coming behind you. And I think it's also encouraging if you are there, again, not to be the poster person, not to be the token person that everyone wheels out. But if people do see you, and they see that you're different, it may just encourage them to feel like, actually, I could do that as well. Hmm. Yeah, we touched briefly there on that idea of kind of tokenism and, you know, being sort of the poster person of, of where you're working. So are there particular instances you felt that? And if so, kind of like, how do you overcome that feeling of kind of, you know, because some people get a very severe kind of imposter syndrome of kind of, I'm only here because of this. Um, and I'm sure that's something that you've come across yourself. So how have you kind of overcome that? Oh, gosh, I think I, I think we all suffer with imposter syndrome. And, and, you know, sometimes every day I think, you know, what am I doing? Do I know what I'm doing? Why have, why have I got this great job that I'm doing now? And, you know, I still pinch myself in the fact that, you know, the firm took a punt on me um, with someone, you know, by, you know, give, giving me this new career um, path, which I had no background in I didn't have any educational um, qualifications in um, but they they decided that you know I was the person to this role so it's like the second bite of the cherry of, of my of having a good career uh, model and um, I think I think basically you do have to learn to trust your own instincts and I think you do have to learn to believe in yourself but it can take time. It's, it's a journey sometimes. And even now, I still feel like I'm doing that journey. And I am in my early 50s now. And I still feel like I'm doing a journey. So I would say that don't feel under pressure to actually know what your direction is, to actually know um, if the career that you're choosing is the right one. Sometimes you choose a career, it doesn't work out. Don't feel like you have failed. Failure is... A positive thing because it tells you what you don't want to do and then it gives you the opportunity to go and find out what you do want to do um so again you know being not being a token person i think it's being yourself and getting involved in stuff that you want to do but doing it because you want to and not because you feel pressurized to do it so you know organizations amongst all the all the industries are changing and there are more and more people from diverse backgrounds so you you will probably i think the generations coming are going to find people that look like them um it was a lot harder for myself obviously because of what i chose to do but the good thing is that the tide has turned and i think there are more there's more diversity within workforces so hopefully generations to come won't feel like they are a token or a poster person um, because there are people that have been, been there before and people that they can follow afterwards. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to um, move on now to something that um, you've also taken up, which is the kind of mental health work that you do. Um, and obviously, you know, coming out of the pandemic now, that's something where there's a lot of readjustment, a lot of, you know, struggles that people have gone through because of that time period. So what was it that kind of led you to taking an active role in mental health support? And why is it so important? So I became very active in the mental health um, arena from, well, pre-COVID, to be honest. Um, we set up our disability committee back in 2012 on the back of the Paralympics. Um, one of our clients is Channel 4, and they've done an amazing job of, you know, sort of um, putting out the, the Paralympics, the importance of people with disabilities and how well, they can achieve so much. And we decided that actually, have we looked internally at ourselves as to how we're supporting people with disabilities? And that's across the board, visible, invisible, uh, neurodiversity, mental health, et cetera. And from the back of that, we started really working hard to ensure that we were looking after our own internal disability committee, uh, sorry, community. Um, and mental health was a strand of area that we decided to pull out and deal as a separate section because there was so much involved with people having mental health conditions. You know, we always say that everyone has mental health, but it depends on whether you've got good or bad mental health going on. And you can go from mental health to mental health issues to mental health conditions. And once you get down the conditions route, that's where you're talking about professional help. That's where you talk about medication, potentially therapy, et cetera. And so I'd started getting involved in some of our mental health campaigns pre-COVID. So we did some um, sort of stop the stigma campaigns, which were talking about mental health. Um, and at that point, I was talking about things like depression and um, anxiety um, that I knew that I had an OCD that I also knew that I had. Um, and lots of other people within the firm, uh, you know, people of high level seniority all the way down, business professionals, lawyers, etc., were also getting involved. And it was great because they were hearing, you know, people who were in the firm were hearing from people that they know. So it made it more re realistic. It made it more sort of like relevant. And it made more people, I think, decide to kind of talk about it and even possibly declare that they had their own issues to deal with. Um, and then obviously the pandemic hit and then the whole world closed up. And a lot of people who at that point had never suffered from or experienced any sort of mental health, unfortunately did. Um, and I was one of those people that in 2020, I basically had a full mental health breakdown. Um, and it was um, quite a shock. Um, I knew something wasn't right. I knew that I was um, starting to feel like something wasn't right. And I just kept pushing it back in the back of my mind thinking, oh, it'd be fine, it'd be fine. And I started to make myself physically ill. And in the end, I ended up having to speak to, long story short, ended up speaking to a mental health team with our health providers. And they put me in touch with an amazing psychiatrist who I'm still under the care now. And she, after long conversations with me, um, she determined and my prognosis was that I have bipolar depression, uh, complex PTSD, um, OCD and acute anxiety. So, I then realized actually, yes, I was more ill than I realized. Um, because of COVID, she couldn't treat me as an outpatient. 
So she then said to me, look, I want you to voluntarily come into uh, the psychiatric unit at the Priory in Kent. Um, I would like you to come willingly rather than, you know, section you. Um, so I did. And I spent five weeks there and it was probably the best five weeks of my life because it gave me back my life. Up until then, I was thinking of suicide and self-harm every single day. I was being, like I said, ill physically. So I was being sick. I was having migraines. So that gave me the opportunity to dial back the clock and take stock of what was happening, speak to the professional people who could help me get the medication that I needed for my conditions and put me back on the right safe path of health. Um, five weeks after that, I, gave, I, I sorry, I, after the five weeks, I went home. I spent the first three days literally in bed. I think my body went into some form of shock and it just went to, bit, it just went to sleep for three days. Um, and then I spent six weeks off work um, to recuperate and then went back into work because I felt like I had to dip my toe in the water to make sure I was still able to do my job and, and thankfully I was. Um, but I always say to people, and people think it's a little strange when I say that, you know, COVID saved my life and it did because had that not happened when it did, I could have probably still been coming into the office. I could have been traveling to different places because I had quite a good social life. But because of the way I was feeling and thinking, um, it may be that I did something drastic, which would meant that today we wouldn't be having this conversation. So for me, I learned a lot of lessons about myself. I learned that I needed to be more kind and compassionate and non-judgmental to myself. And it's my, again, a little mantra that I try to rehearse every day in my head. Um, and I also give that out to other people, you know, to be that way with yourself. I think, you know, you hear a lot about resilience and I didn't really know what that meant until I'd gone through all this. Um, and you, you know, you hear a lot about self-care and mindfulness. And again, I thought mindfulness was something where you went and did a yoga class or Pilates or, you know, you sit and you sort of just spent half an hour in some sort of distant mind thing. But it's not. Mindfulness is really, really easy. It's literally just taking time out to just sit or to go for a walk or to do something different, to just give yourself some self-care. Um so I've learned a lot more to do that. And I would advise anyone who's listening to do the same, you know, to look after yourself. You know, we are coming out of the pandemic, thankfully. Things are starting to go back to some sort of normality that people know and appreciated, hopefully, more now than they did before. Um, but we still need to give ourselves self-care because, you know, especially if you've experienced a mental health illness or issue for the first time, it could take a while before you come out the other side, but you shouldn't rush it, you know, take your time to come out the other side and you will benefit from it. Yeah, that's such a personal story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that means a lot. Um, I think that kind of leads us on to the second part of today's discussion and that idea of, of allyship, because I think that's something that's often associated with the LGBTQ plus community, but allyship is important in all um, senses. So I think firstly, I, I just want to kind of ask you as someone who's kind of been on both sides of, you know, needing that support, but also offering that support mental health wise, what are the kind of do's and don'ts as someone who wants to help a friend, help a colleague, help a family member, but without, you know, becoming, you know, too much of a burden themselves? 
Yeah, so I mean, I'm now a mental health first aider as well as a first aider. Um, and we get training. And, you know, part of the training is to say that, you know, we are not professional people. We are just there to listen and to help somebody find their own path and to help somebody make decisions on to whether they feel like they need more professional help or whether it's just a case they're having a really bad day or they just need somebody that they can talk to. Um, you know, we're not there to provide them with any sort of medical experience because we don't have that and we're not taught that. And I think if you are, if you see somebody in your family or your friendship group or whatever who may be struggling, having an open dialogue, having a conversation with them, but not making them feel pressurised, but you can, you know, just basically by saying something as simple as, are you okay? You know, that can start a dialogue. That can allow that person to potentially start speaking about how they're feeling, you know, or if you want to keep it even more indirect, you know, you could even say something like, um, you know where I am if you need me, you know, if you need anyone to talk to. I think it's keeping it a softly approach and letting that person come to you and not saying anything that's going to make them feel upset or or feel like you're pointing a finger at them. So like, you know, potentially if someone does seem to be not themselves, you know, maybe acting in a different way by saying, saying something like, what's the matter with you? You know, why are you being like that? Can be quite aggressive and it can make that person potentially feel like you're attacking them. So it may be that they feel they can't come to you because you know, you're not showing that you've got any empathy or you're not showing that you are willing to listen to them. So that will might make them sort of go back into themselves and make them feel like they've got no one to turn to. And if they've got only a small network of people, you may be one of those people that they would normally turn to. So I think it's just, it's a softly approach. It's giving them the opportunity to speak. So it's opening the dialogue, but not pressurizing them, letting them come to you, um, not saying anything that might be upsetting think about if it was yourself how would you like somebody to approach you i think is the best way around that as well mm. so yeah i just want to kind of move on now to kind of allyship in general and we'll start to talk more about kind of lgbtq plus allyship so yeah. firstly um kind of what does the word ally just mean to you very simply Ally to me in a simple term is, uh, I suppose, support, um, friendship, um, being there. I think those are the, the, the kind of words I would use for allyship. Um, this, one of the things I like to say now is the second voice, because I think a lot of people, um, when they feel like they can't be themselves or talk out, loud about something that's happening to them if there's someone with who they feel well if somebody also speaks up for them and also supports them that is the second voice and sometimes it's only that extra voice you need to make you feel like you can actually be honest about what's going on and mm. you know feel like you can actually say this is what's happening yeah is there kind of like a, an early memory perhaps or a sort of first instance where you sort of remember being kind of that proper like ally figure for someone? Yeah, so um, I think the first time I remember being an ally is, oh, I was about 14. So I was in um, secondary school or high school, as they call it now. 
Um, and I had a friendship group. And um, one of the friend, one of my friends was a boy um, in our friendship group and um, call him Eddie for ease. Um, and um, Eddie seemed to be really happy to sort of be within the girl, more girl friendship group than in the mixed friendship group. Um, so he tended to, you know, to, to hang around with the girls more. We used to discuss all sorts of things from, you know, makeup, boys, clothes, et cetera, et cetera. And he seemed really comfortable with that conversation, which seemed a little bit unusual because, you know, boys mainly wanted to talk about, you know, more kind of, <clears throat> more, I don't know, at that point, manly things, you know, games and um, whatever else, you know, that boys would chat about, girls probably, etc. And um, and so we used to have all these conversations. And I just, I don't know whether anyone really noticed, but I did, that he was much more comfortable around us. And I just remembered one day um, we decided to go to the pictures. We both wanted to see a particular film that was on. And so we arranged to meet and go to the pictures. So we got to the pictures, get, went in, <clears throat> went and sat down, uh, ready for the film to start. And then um, we were talking and then the film was about to start. And then he kind of reached over the back of my chair with his arm. I didn't think anything of it. I just carried on watching the screen. And then he turned to go towards me to kiss me. On, to kiss me. And I was like, whoa. And I sort of pulled back, not in a horrified way or anything. I just sort of pulled back. because so I was like, I don't know why you're doing that, where you're going with this. And I kind of said to him, what are you doing? Not in a horrible way, just to kind of like in a very questionable way. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? And he was like, oh, I thought we were on a date. And I was like, no, I think we were just going, coming here as friends. And he was like, oh, I said, but also, why would you want to be kissing a girl when I don't think you're interested in girls? And he sort of looked at me and he's like, oh, why do you think that? And I just kind of said to him, you know, how I how I'd seen what he was like around us, girls and boys, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden he just went, no, you're right. And he kind of started literally just talking then about how he was feeling. And he mentioned that he'd spoken to his, he told his mum and his sister that he thought he was gay. And they both turned around and said, oh, don't be silly. You'll grow out of it. It's something you'll grow out of. Don't worry about it. And they totally dismissed him. And he said he felt like he couldn't say it to anybody else because of the way that his family had been so dismissive. But he was really relieved that I'd actually said something. And we had this really good conversation. As it was, we left the cinema before the film properly started because we just started talking and it was just much more interesting. And we went to, I think we went to like the Wimpy Bar or something and we sat there and chatted for the rest of the evening. And he felt, he said to me, I feel so relieved that I can actually say this out loud to somebody and I just feel so much better. And it was really weird because it was almost like the tide had turned. And when he went to school, he started being his true self and he spoke to some of the other girls in our friendship group and then some of the boys in the other friendship group. And he got such a welcoming feeling about being his true self that by the time he left school, everybody knew that Eddie was, was gay, but everybody loved him. And, and nobody, he didn't have any, um, nobody said anything horrible. Actually, the boys were really great because they stuck up for him if anyone did say anything that was a bit nasty. Um, and then about 10 or 15 years later, I happened to notice on Facebook um, a post that he put up. Um, and it was of his um, wedding photo to his husband and he'd got married and to someone he'd been with 
um, for many years and they'd finally tied the knot. And it was, do you know what? I just saw that picture of him and I just, it had, I had the biggest smile on my face and I was so glad that he'd followed his true path and was still true to himself. And yeah, so that was my first experience of being an ally, really. Yeah. So do you think that uh, your experience and that kind of intersectional experience that we were talking about earlier kind of um, influences how you're an ally and perhaps, you know, shapes how you can interact with, you know, someone like Eddie and kind of almost empathise in a way of that sort of similar experience? Yeah, I think, I think at the end of the day, recognising that we're all different and giving people a chance to talk about their difference and kind of feel comfortable with that. I think it helps you to be a good ally. But it also, if you know that you have been judged by your own differences, it makes you feel like people will understand you as well and that you have allies, even if people don't come forward. Um, you know, people often wonder whether they need to be relatable to somebody. It helps, but it doesn't have to be the be and an end all. I think having empathy with people is important. If you can have something that relates slightly to that person, what they might be going through, but not necessarily the same thing, it might just give you that edge on understanding and be more empathetic. Mm. And sort of on the other, other side of that scale, would you say that, you know, someone with a lot of privilege, um, someone who potentially comes from that sort of like white, male, heterosexual, very sort of middle-class, upper-class bracket, how d- have you tackled um, in your own experience and how do you think other people should approach kind of educating those people that perhaps aren't aware of that privilege and being able to allow them to understand why, um, that influences their decisions, their perspective on the world, and just how how do you educate them on becoming sort of more well-rounded in terms of their understanding and support of people that perhaps don't share that same amount of privilege? Yeah, I mean, it's quite difficult because I think if you do come from a more privileged background, you tend to think that you know everything about everything. And so you tend to not really ask the right questions or ask questions at all. You sometimes just presume everything. And I think when you don't, I think it's having the being comfortable in yourself to be able to sort of say things and also not taking offence too much by what some people who come from much more privileged backgrounds may say. Because like I say, they assume more than they actually know. And it's the, the, the only way sometimes you can teach them is by correcting them when they have said something that they, they don't think is um, upsetting or, um, or is incorrect. But by then saying, telling them what the correct way to sort of speak somebody or to address somebody or, or something like that um, might give them a better understanding. And again, I can give you an, uh, an example of this, where you, I turned something which could be quite awkward into something that was um, was more humorous, should I say. So um, I, well, there was, there's two, but I'll tell you about this particular one. 
And so basically I was working for a chartered accountancy firm and I, my boss had companies, was a, come from a privileged background. He was very much old school. Um, I would say a gentrified background. Um, so his business was on the back of money and, and family um, money, etc. And so he was, he, you know, he'd gone to the best universities. He sounded very upper class and a lot of his clients were. And I remember having this conversation with one particular client who I got on really, really well with. And he would phone up quite regularly to speak to my boss. And then he told me one day that he was coming into London and he would love to come and see my boss and it would be a great opportunity to meet me. So we arranged the date and time and he arrived. And this is where I'm saying about not thinking about what you're going to say because you don't realise what you're going to say could be misinterpreted or, or taken as, a, as an insult. But he walked in and I, he introduced himself and I introduced myself. And without actually thinking about it, he just turned around and said, oh, you're black. And so now there was two ways I could have taken that. I could have either been very insulted and said something rude, or I could have turned it around to make the atmosphere less tense and so he didn't feel stupid or that he'd upset me so I just sort of said in a very jovial voice oh yes I am and he was like no no sorry I don't mean it like that and I said no no no, it's absolutely fine it's absolutely I'm not upset and I'm not offended and he was like oh you know I'm really really and he you know he kept apologizing and in the end I said please don't 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 worry about it it's absolutely fine and we had a bit of a giggle about it and after that, whenever he called up, you know, we still had the same conversation type, type conversation. Nothing had changed. But I think because I'd made it more humorous rather than taken offence, he was able to feel, OK, I probably said the wrong thing, but I haven't upset her and she's corrected me and that's fine. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's, it's when people presume they know and then they get it wrong, if they're willing to kind of, apologize and be corrected that's how they'll learn but if not then they just get stuck yeah so when it comes to those instances of more kind of like direct sort of support or you know understanding of someone do you think that you know the right approach is more of a sort of compassion based one and trying to you know just be there for them emotionally or is it more of an empathy one and really trying to understand how they are feeling or is it just simply being there for them it's probably a bit of both, really. Um, I think, you know, being empathetic is really important because it shows that you are there to support somebody through whatever they're going through. Having some compassion can help because if you are, if you have something that's slightly relatable to what, you know, if you go through, you've got differences of your own that you know that you have to struggle to get you know, past the door, so to speak. And you know that there is discrimination in what your differences could be. It kind of makes you more compassionate against what other people are going through. But I think that the two work together. I think if you can relate to someone not necessarily having the same difference, it makes you more empathetic because obviously you understand how that difference can make you stand out from the crowd and how the difference is might not make people understand who you really are. Um, but I think supporting each other 
is one of the biggest things that we should be doing because that way we all, well, hopefully discrimination will become a thing of the past as time goes on. We destigmatize, you know, people for having differences. Um, and people will learn better and have better understanding rather than just kind of, you know, presuming um, or thinking that someone else is helping others so they don't need to do it. Because mm. if you don't embrace that, then you will constantly be possibly doing the wrong thing and nobody's telling you because you're not actually putting yourself in the position where you're being corrected. Mm. I think it's also worth um, discussing before we finish, kind of actually the, the presence of the word ally and actually whether it should sort of be one that's still used. I mean, obviously we've come to a point now where, you know, allyship and being an ally for you know, any group is kind of a, a widely accepted thing. And perhaps more of our energy should be focused on those who are not an ally rather than kind of celebrating that very low bar of, mm. you know, accepting and embracing um, people from minority backgrounds. So to you, do you think that the word ally is still something that we need or is it something we need to move on from? Um, I still think it's something that we need. I don't think if we move away from it, what will happen is we'll go backwards and people who don't aren't educated in the right way of thinking will then start saying again, the wrong things. Um, and then the people who need the support will then feel isolated again and they'll feel like they're on their own. So I think allyship is important still. I think we, whether we continue to call it allyship or friendship or supporters or whatever we tend to call it, I think it's just a case of ensuring that people can embrace and celebrate that we are all different in all different ways um, and that our uniqueness is what makes us all special. And so... I don't think we should get, you know, get rid of the word allyship or, like I said, supporters, friendship, whatever. Um, we don't probably need to label everybody, but we just have to remember that we all may, whether we have lots of differences, one or two differences or none at all, we all need to be there for each other. And we all need to remember that we are all human beings um and we are all you know cut us we all bleed the same um and that we need to just have understanding for each other and i think if we can start from the very young if we can start teaching the very young who are the next generations to come and they are the people that are going to again be putting out into the world um either prejudice or discrimination or not then that's what we need to do we need to get to a point where we're not sitting here talking about this as a subject because it doesn't really exist because everyone just is allowing everyone else to live their lives hmm. yeah that's brilliant thank you so final question uh, before we end today um, I'd just like to ask everyone that comes on to one of these episodes what is the one piece of advice that you would just love to share with more people that more people would use and you know carry forward in their lives what is that one piece of advice that one mantra that one thing that you know motivates you and you want to share it with other people 
oh gosh I've got so many mantras what's my best one what's the one that I would like to always say um I think especially coming out of the COVID time as well what I have learned to do is live my best life because there are lots of people who are not around you know who you know unfortunately COVID had no exceptions and there's some people that did lose their lives because of that and I think it's made it more important to me that I need to stop sweating the small things and just get on with living my best life because I feel like I'm living that life not just for me but for others who are not here so yeah so I suppose my mantra would be live your best life yeah fantastic all right all that's left to say then I guess is thank you so much Carol for taking the time to talk to me today it's been really really uh, fun to just have this conversation so interesting to listen to your insights so thank you for agreeing to come on today oh thank you Zach it's been an absolute pleasure and again thank you for having me as a guest speaker on your podcast um and I just wish everybody the best uh yeah thank you again <laughs>